Acts, and I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles or a copy of the Bible nearby you, if you would, and turn to Exodus 25 this morning. Exodus 25, second book in the Old Testament, isn't it? I would like to do a little bit like we did last week, which was, which is rather than focusing down into one text and just exposing that text for us, to rather take some time to trace a theme throughout the Bible, in this case, six different passages starting in the book of Exodus. So, this is the day you get to practice your sword drills, I guess, and see how fast you can find the passage. I was thinking this week about the various types and shadows, pre-foreshadowings of Christ, all throughout the Old Testament era and recorded for us in the Old Testament Scriptures. And the New Testament writers see those types and foreshadowings and they say, look, they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But I was thinking also how many of those types and shadows and, and symbols are fulfilled not only in Christ, but by extension, the fulfillment is seen in the people of Christ. You ever thought about that? Let me give you a few for example, and I'm sure, I don't know that I could say this is a universal rule, but it certainly is a frequent occurrence, the temple. The temple pointed people, by way of being the epicenter of God's presence, it pointed people to Jesus who would be in His person, the very epicenter of the presence of God. So the New Testament writers point to Jesus as the fulfillment of the temple, but then they turn around and use that same language to talk about us who are connected to Christ. Or take another one, the manna that comes down from heaven. He is the manna. He is the bread of the Passover. He is the bread from God that sustains us into everlasting life. Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood will have everlasting life, Jesus says. That is, whoever partakes of of Christ by faith is is partakes of the bread of life. But then Jesus, uh, Paul turns around in 1 Corinthians, he says, do you understand when you partake of Christ like that, believingly, you all become one loaf. You all become one loaf of bread, one uh, with Christ of whom you partake. Or, for example, the idea of election and the chosen one. Jesus Christ is the chosen one of God in the Old Testament, and yet in the New Testament that term of election is applied to all who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ by God's grace. Or the fact that Jesus is the priest. He is the great fulfillment of what the priesthood pointed to. Or all of the kings. All of the kings of Israel were supposed to point us to our need and our desire, our longing for a great king who would rule righteously. Jesus is the priest and the king, but yet he turns around and he says, you are a kingdom of priests in union with Jesus Christ, or the fact that He is the Son of God, the promised Son. i tell you one thing, there is one and only one fulfillment of that promise of a Son who would do great things. Eve was promised a Son, Abraham was promised a Son, David is promised a Son. Who is the Son? The Son is Jesus Christ ultimately. But yet the Bible can turn around and say that through Jesus Christ, God is bringing many sons into glory. He calls us His children over and over again. You see how this happens? Over and over again. There's so many of these. I could go on with Moses and and, and others. But uh, I think the, 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 the sort of paradigm one of this 
to really show us how it works is the way Paul uses the term offspring in Galatians 3, talking about Abraham's offspring. God promised to bless his offspring. He could have said, I promise to bless your children, plural, but he said, I promise to bless your offspring, singular. And Paul says that was talking about the one and only son that he would have that really fulfilled all those promises, and that was Jesus. But then he turns around and he says, and through Jesus, by connection with him, you all inherit the promises made to Abraham. And so all of these images, um, there is one singular, and yet it is a collective singular, which by its very nature encompasses all that are united to him. And that's why you know how many times I've talked to you about union with Christ. That is the center of the gospel. You don't have salvation because of anything apart from all of God's glorying in Jesus. Jesus is your hope. Jesus is the good news. I'm not telling you today to receive a particular set of principles or to enter into a new set of rituals. I'm asking you today to receive Jesus Christ. Look to the Lamb of God. If you have Jesus, you have everything. If you're not united to Jesus, you have nothing, no matter how religious you are. That's where all of the Bible points, God's goodness to us through Jesus Christ. And I mentioned all of this last week. There are several um, images and foreshadowings of Christ that we think of in particular with connection to Christmas because they're used in the... uh, in the prophetic promises of the coming Messiah that we often quote at Christmas time. The most obvious is the is the promised son. Um, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. But there are others. The, the servant of Jehovah in Isaiah becomes a big uh, messianic uh, title. The promised king that will sit on David's throne forever and ever and ever and ever. That is a big one. Um, But I want to highlight one of them today because I think it also highlights really beautifully this idea that all of God's blessings come to one singular individual, but then through him to all of those who are united to him. And that is a term that is used in some of the Christmas songs that we sing, or at least we hear. I don't think we sing them very often. But, uh, well, this one we do, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. One of the verses says, O come thou rod of Jesse. What is a rod? We think of it like a big something to beat somebody with, you know, or I don't know, what do you think of? Maybe you think of something different. Um, but the but word means uh, uh, an offshoot, a branch, uh, a little... Um, uh, the, uh, the word is used all throughout the Old Testament, um, something that springs to life out of something else, okay? Something that branches off from something else. O come, thou branch of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell, thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. We sing at Christmas time. Or sometimes you've probably heard that song that, uh, Lo, how a rose air blooming. It's not the one that you hear on the radio, you know, when you're driving to work on the, on the, you know, the feel-good Christmas song. But there's a lot of truth in it because it captures the prophecies of Isaiah. Lo, how a rose Air before blooming, air blooming, from tender stem hath sprung. There's a little stem, and there's a there's a, a little offshoot that's coming out, and it's gonna blossom into a rose of Jesse's lineage coming. 
as men of old have sung. It came, a flower bright, amid the cold of winter, when half spent was the night. Isaiah, twas foretold it, the rose I have in mine, and with Mary we behold it, the virgin mother kind. To show God's love aright, he bore to men a Savior, when half spent was the night. That's the theme. The branch, the root out of Jesse, that will bring forth fruit. I want to first of all talk to you about the symbolism that's behind this. There's typology and there's also symbolism going on in this term. A symbol is something concrete in, in, in reality. I should use that term. There are things that are not concrete and yet are more real than the things that are. But this is something that's concrete, that's tangible, or at least, you know, we know of these things. We can touch and see them in our world, but they speak of something else uh, beyond. They're symbols of something else. We all have symbols all around us. I'm not going to tell you what a symbol is. This term branch becomes a symbol that's used in the Old Testament, uh, and it's first introduced to us in Exodus chapter 25. And uh, look at page uh, 65, 66 in the House Bible, Exodus chapter 25, if you're looking for it. Um, This is the preparations for the tabernacle. The Lord gives to the people of Israel a place to worship God. And he says in verse 31 that there should be in the holy place a lampstand. You see that there? Verse 31, a lampstand made out of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work, its base stem, its cups, its calyxes, which is not a term we often use unless you're maybe a botanist, I don't know. It's that sort of leafy green, um, hard leafy uh, part that surrounds uh, a flower before it opens up. And you know, you see the the little hard leaves on the bottom. So make it with all of these, the, the stem, you get the terminology here, what's going on? There's a stem, there's cups, there's calyxes, and it's flowers. So in other words, this whole thing is supposed to be like a tree, a budding tree. There should be six branches. Here's the term. Branches going out from its sides, three branches on one side, three on the other, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch. It's a branching branching tree full of flowers, blossoming, giving light to the the room, right? Because each flower is a lamp. So you end up with kind of an oil tree lamp of seven uh, branches, one central and then six branches going off of them and each one ending with a bud and it's just fruitful, fruitfulness uh, times seven, which is a number of what? You know, kind of a just completeness, perfection. It's just, you know, it's just all fruitfulness, all light, all glory from this lampstand. That's the picture here. If you're in God's presence, you're in the presence of great beauty and fruitfulness and light. There's further symbolism, (coughs) excuse me, that each bud on this seven-branched tree was like uh, was in fact a lamp, and you poured oil in that lamp. But it doesn't take you very long in reading the Old Testament to come to the understand that the oil um, is 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 kind of symbolic of the Holy Spirit, because people who were messiahs, that is small letter M who were anointed ones for a particular task, like a prophet or a priest or, or a king, prophet, uh, priest and king, 
they were anointed with oil to set them apart, and it was as if a sign of God's pouring out an unusual measure, pouring out His Holy Spirit upon this person to do a great work of leading His people. So now here is that symbol in all of its fullness right in the presence of God. Because you want to know where the Holy Spirit, the spirit of power and might, the spirit of leadership comes from. They, he's, God is saying to his people, it, it springs from my holy place. That's where, that's where this kind of enablement comes from. So that's the symbolism going on here. So when a priest would go into the tabernacle or the temple, he would see a visible reminder of the perfect and complete outpouring of God's spirit to prosper his work and to bring it to fruitfulness among the people of Israel. And we get a chance to see what this looks like actually lived out in person in history, now in types. So we move from the symbolism of the branch to types of the branch. Now a type, um, as most of you probably already know, but a type is, is a, a person or a thing, an event even, that was real, it occurred within history. It's not a made-up thing. It's not just something snatched out for the purpose of symbolism, but it's a, a real event or person in history that points forward in history to a greater manifestation of that same inherent thing in the age to come, in the unfolding of God's revelation. And particularly as you move from the Old Testament shadowy revelation into the New Testament unveiled revelation where we see Christ. So this becomes, this idea of branch, a branch becomes not only, is not only a symbol, but it becomes a type in a couple of passages in the Old Testament. Um, let's turn to one of them, if you would, and that's in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5. All right, this is passage number 2. You're doing well. All right, we're cruising right along. So far, so good. Isaiah 5. <clears throat> In this passage, the nation Israel, the people of the Jews, are spoken of as God's vine or God's tree with all of its branches coming out. This terminology is used in many passages, not just Isaiah, but Psalms, uh, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Micah, Zechariah, and probably others that I couldn't think of at the moment when I wrote my notes. So, it's a very common theme, and here's the way the Lord uses it, though. You see it in a very disappointing way, or a sad way. The Lord says, let me sing of my beloved the song concerning his vineyard. My people, uh, excuse me, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. And what will become clear as you read, continue reading Isaiah and then the other prophets is that the vineyard is Israel. God's, it's God's people. He's planted them, right? He, he plucked them out of Egypt and he planted them into the promised land. He dug up the earth, got rid of the Canaanites. He planted his people there. He watered them spiritually. He gave them all of his blessings and he was looking for them to rise up and bear fruit to his glory. But he says, I cleared it with stones, planted it with choice vines, built a watchtower in the midst, huge to wine vat in it, and looked for it. And, and, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Nothing fit to eat. It's nasty. I don't want to eat this stuff. I was looking for good fruit, and all there is is bad fruits. Like when you go to the 
tree to pick a good crisp apple and you get one that's all mealy and nasty and kind of, you know, sour and bleh. That's what the Lord is like. He said, I was looking for my people. I did everything I could to bless my people and all that they're giving back for me to be his bad fruit. And it goes on like this. Psalm 80 picks up the same imagery. You don't have to turn there, but the Lord talks about a vine whose branches are huge and they're strong under King David, but because of their rebellion, they're going to be cut off. They're going to be just lopped off this, leaving just a kind of a stump. And if you turn to Isaiah 6, we're still in Isaiah, just flip over. Again, you see a continuation of this, verse number 8. Isaiah 6, 8, when I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go uh, and say to the people, keep on hearing, do not understand, keep on seeing um, and do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, in other words, he's saying, Isaiah, I want you to go preach to the people But I'm going to tell you right now, all your preaching is going to do with these people is harden them. And by the way, you know, don't be discouraged, brothers and sisters, about saying the truth. Sometimes we're we're afraid to say the truth because we're afraid of how people are going to respond. It's just going to harden them. You know, honestly, this passage says sometimes that's what God is, that's the way God is going to be glorified. He's going to preach his word and it's going to simply harden people. You don't get to choose and you don't know what your word is going to do. You don't know whether your word may be that which God uses to hold those people accountable. I told you the truth and glorify his justice and his righteousness. He didn't pull one over on them without them knowing. Or whether your word will prove to be life to them and bring them back from the dead, as it were. You just go out and you say the truth, right? That's what Isaiah was supposed to do. So God says, go and preach. But I'm telling you, these people are not going to listen. And so he says, Lord, how long? Verse 11, you see that? That's what we all want to know when we get given a hard assignment. Lord, how long? And he says, until the cities lie waste, without inhabitant houses, without people, and the land is desolate waste. And the Lord removes its people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. The great... Testimony of God's judgment. He's gonna, Isaiah's gonna preach and preach and preach, and the people are gonna reject and reject and reject until finally God raises up Nebuchadnezzar, and God raises up the Babylonians, and God raises up God, Israel's enemies, and he's just gonna come and carry them away into captivity and desolate their land. But, here's the but. Aren't the buts of the Bible great? The, the, you know, you were dead in your sin, but God has made you alive. Amen? So here's the but. Verse number 13. Although a tenth, um, excuse me, uh, it's in the end, the end of the verse. Uh, here's, this is still a little bit more negative. Though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Anybody ever chop down a tree? You do some chopping down. And when you get all done, you, what do you do with the stump? Well, you could hook your pickup to it and rip off your bumper. Um, or some of you have done that, I can tell. Or... You burn it, right? I was watching a video online. Don't tell me why I did this. Probably a waste of time, but this guy showing how to cut a stump and put stuff down inside, burn it from the inside out so it burns it all the way down, right? So the Lord says, this is what I'm going to do with Israel. I'm going I'm to send their enemies and lop off the, this vine that's supposed to flourish and bring me glory. I'm just going to cut it down. 
and then I'm going to burn the stump. But, he says, but, the end of the verse, there is a holy seed still in that stump. There's still a little bit of life there. And, of course, that was the little remnant that was faithful, but it gets even more narrow than that. The real holy seed was yet to come. Who will it be? Aren't you waiting? All right, we got to keep finding out, don't we? <clears throat> That's the type. Uh, in fact, there's one more passage. Let's turn here real quick. I <clears throat> try not to spend too long on this one, but it's a very fascinating one. I know I've shared this one with you before, probably most of this stuff, but Zechariah chapter 6. So Zechariah, that's one of those books you've got to... All right, read it when you find it. It's a sword drill, right? <clears throat> Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. Of course, you guys have your phones. You're cheaters. Anyway, Zechariah chapter 6, page 795 of you using the House Bible. Zechariah is preaching <clears throat> the people of Israel who have finally now returned from this huge exile, this captivity that they've been bound in, that Isaiah prophesied. Zechariah is now preaching on the other end of that, preaching to the people who've been in captivity for 70 years, and now they're finally trickling back little by little into the promised land and into the land of Israel, the land of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. And God raised up at that time a guy by the name of Joshua, not the Joshua that followed Moses, but the Joshua, a Joshua who is a high priest. And of course, um, you know, there's no temple to be a high priest in yet, but, um, but that, you know, they're going to build the temple. But he's raised up a priest, and he's also raised up Zerubbabel, who is in the Davidic line, but he's not a king because there's no kingdom to rule over, but he's the governor. And so you've got this, uh, you've got Joshua and Zerubbabel, and uh, verse number, look at chapter 6, verse 11. He says, now take uh, silver and take gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, which is a very interesting thing to do. You don't normally crown the priests, um, unless it's the, the priestly crown that he's talking about. Uh, but in any case, you go on verse 12, he says, um, Thus uh, says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is... I'm going to give this guy a name, the Lord says. I'm going to call him the branch. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Of course, he was instrumental. Joshua and Zerubbabel, along with other leaders, were instrumental in the rebuilding of that temple. The Lord will cause His people to be fruitful in their land again. He's brought them back to the land, and now they're going to start bearing fruit. The first of that is the rebuilding of this temple and uh, the enjoyment of God's presence. So let's call Him the branch. The branch that bears fruit. Again, the idea is of flourishing and of prospering. There are other key elements uh, back in chapter 4, um, right, which is right across the page, isn't it? Um, Zechariah sees a vision there. I won't read it all, but basically he sees, Zechari uh, he sees the vision of a, of a lampstand, the same lampstand that we read about earlier with all of its branches and buds and oil, and it was all lighted. And in this case, the two men 
are not two branches. Joshua and Zerubbabel are not branches of this thing. They are two olive trees, one on either side of the, of the, um, of the lampstand. And there is somehow in his vision sort of golden conduits or tubes running f- directly from the olive trees right down to the lamp so that the lamp never has to be tended. It never runs out of oil. There's like this never-ending supply of oil which produces never-ending light, never-ending fruitfulness. It's just glory beyond even what was in the tabernacle, even what was in the temple. This is such a great vision. And he says those two olive trees are Joshua and Zerubbabel. But their strength doesn't come from themselves. They're just the conduits, as it were. Of course, he says, it is not by might nor by power. This is Zechariah 4.6. Not by might nor by power. You know this one. But by what? My Spirit, says the Lord. So again, it's the Spirit who is that symbolized by that oil flowing through these men to accomplish this great flourishing work there in the, in the land of Israel again. It's only as these men are filled with the Holy Spirit and overflow with the Holy Spirit that they have success. And that's true for every one of us, isn't it? It is only as we are indwelt by Christ's Spirit. And this, this will come out as we go through that we have any real success. But he calls these men, look in verse 14, he calls them anointed ones. They are small m messiahs. These two men, though, are not the ultimate branch of God, even though one of them is called the branch. Rather, they point forward to someone else. For in another vision, Joshua is pictured as a man wearing a bunch of dirty clothes. I mean, the high priest is is a sinner and has to be given clean clothing by God. So it's not these men ultimately that God is pointing to that's gonna, that are going to rebuild and cause the people of Israel to flourish again, cause God's people to, to uh, be what they ought to be. They rather point forward to something else. In fact, if you look at chapter 3, here's the key verse. Verse number 8, chapter 3, verse number 8, he says to Joshua, look at this, you and your friends, you and the, the other leaders of Israel, you are a what? You are a sign. See that? Did I point you to the right verse? Verse number 8. Here now, Joshua, you and your friends sit before me. You and they are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. So who's the branch? Joshua? Joshua's the branch? But he's just a sign of the branch. He's the small branch. He's the typological branch. The one who points forward to the one who is to come. And of course, that leads us into many prophecies in the Old Testament of the branch. So we have the symbolism of the branch, the types of the branch, and now the prophecies that the branch is yet to come. Isaiah chapter 4, if you want to flip back there. Okay, you're doing well. Keep up the good work. Isaiah 4. This will come to a point that will mean something for you. Isaiah 4. In contrast to the days of judgment and mourning, the Lord says in verse number 2, in that day, in the latter day, the last days, He says, in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors. 
Israel's going to be fruitful again when the branch comes into his own. Joshua brought the people of Israel, remember, into the land of Canaan. And what, what did they come back with? They said, this land is overflowing with milk and honey. It is fruitful. Remember they brought the, the grapes? Can you imagine this? They had to carry the grape vines on their shoulders and these big old, you know, I don't know how big, big old grapes, you know, big clusters of grapes hung down. If you love grapes, you know, if you're not a grape person, it doesn't really excite you. But you can imagine if there's steaks hanging off of that thing or something like that. You know, this was a beautiful land. It was full of fruitfulness. And the Lord says that is going to happen again. My people, not just the land itself will you know, bear crops, but my people will be fruitful. They will please me. They will bring glory to me. They'll do what, what, what gives glory to the one who, who planted them, what he intended to, to, to do. And so it's a beautiful prophecy. And if you'll flip just forward a couple chapters here to chapter 11. <clears throat> In fact, this whole chapter is really <clears throat> an amazing one. <clears throat> and be a good one to read here around Christmas time. But he says in verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The same type of imagery, isn't it? That little shoot that's going to branch out of that stump. All of us have had the experience of cutting down a tree only to come back a couple weeks later and find there's a little stubborn shoot that grew out of it, making a big mess. It looks dorky you got to go to the store and buy some stuff to kill it or else burn the stump out or whatever. The, you know, there's, there's a little bit of life left in there. And he says that's the way it is. There's going to come forth. David's lineage, David's line, remember, gets cut off. When they get carried away into captivity, God says, I'm chopping off the line of David. Done. Which is an astounding thing because, you know, God did that after one generation with Saul cut off the line and gave David a line, he says, is going to last forever. But then he cuts it off. But it's not completely cut off because there's a little bit of life. That little life is going to spring up, God says. It's going to happen. In Isaiah's day. And, uh, and look at verse 2. The imagery continues. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Right? That same imagery of that oil of the Spirit that brings fruitfulness. You know, you can picture a vineyard bringing forth big grapes, or you can picture an olive grove bringing forth masses of olives that are just prized for their, uh, their properties to bring light, to give fuel, to uh, accomplish things. Isaiah envisioned a day when Israel, when the royal Davidic line in particular will be cut off, but in that day a new growth would come. <clears throat> you don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Israel, or excuse me, Judah shall be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which that branch will be called. The Lord is our, excuse me, the Lord, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. And that's a beautiful name. Another name for the branch, isn't it? The branch who's coming will not just be the Lord will help you to be righteous. The Lord will show you what righteousness looks like. The Lord is your righteousness. There is coming a branch who is so 
holy and fruitful and pleasing to the Lord that he himself will be, and, and his relationship with his people will be such that their righteousness will actually be his somehow, right? That is, that is imagery that sets us up for understanding what salvation is all about. And of course, I am anticipating now, finally, the fulfillment of that, all of this branch imagery. <clears throat> and that is the fulfillment that is in Jesus Christ Himself, our Lord and Savior. The very first words of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, begin with the words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The very first thing you hear right off the bat, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of what? He's in the Davidic line that line that was chopped off, the stump that was burnt. All of the enemies came in and they whacked it down. Here's one in the line. Here's one who will bring his people back from exile. Here's one who will plant them in the land. Here's the one who will cause the people of God to flourish like they have never flourished before. All of it in the last days. When the last days have come, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Always remember that, friends. The promises that you hold on to that are so sweet to you are only sweet because of your connection with Jesus Christ. For in Him and in Him alone these promises find their fulfillment. He is the branch who will spring up out of that stump and create new life. Christ is the one who will be truly fruitful where all of the types and the shadows of the Old Testament ultimately failed. Isaiah 11, again, you don't have to turn there, but the Lord says, in that day the root of Jesse shall stand. Listen to this terminology. The root of Jesse, the little, you know, the well, in this case, the root of Jesse, which is an interesting way. He was spoken of as the shoot from Jesse, now he's the root of Jesse, which could mean that he's at the root of Jesse, or it could mean the root that springs up from Jesse. But in any case, he, 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 is, he, is, he precedes Jesse, certainly, but he, he springs up. This root of Jesse, he says, will stand as a signal for the peoples, plural. Of him shall the nations, that is a reference to Gentiles, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place will be glorious. What he's predicting here is something unusual. Not just that, the, that, that God is going to bring a little branch to grow out of the burned out stump of, of Israel and the Jews are going to flourish. Not, not just the physical Jews. He's talking about this a kind of flourishing that grows up to encompass the whole world. He's going to bring his people from all of the places where they have been scattered on every high hill and on every mountain. And that is not just physical Jews, but all of those who will belong to him by faith. He's going to bring this. This is a great enlarged promise. Um, and uh, the, the scripture teaches us in Romans chapter 11 that the rejection by the Jewish people of God has become riches for the Gentiles. That the gospel has gone all over the earth and is right now going all over the earth bearing fruit for God's glory. The very end of Jesus' ministry, you remember, <clears throat> as he suffered rejection from the Jewish people, he used this imagery again when he found this fig tree on the way into Jerusalem 
that wasn't producing any figs and he cursed it. And people say, what is he doing? Is he just mad at the tree because he was really hungry? No, this is all a symbol, right? Like all the prophets did. It's a symbol of the unfruitfulness of God's people and the judgment that would befall them. But yet, but yet the Lord would be merciful to the world and he would bring into his son a people from all peoples. And this is how so many of the Old Testament images work, right? It's a collective thing. God has a branch, but from that branch spring forth many others. Or to use the terminology, the the metaphor of Romans 11, what God does is He takes all of the people from the nations who were not God's people, And he makes them my people by grafting them in to the one true tree who's growing up. Right? Isn't that the way it works? Not two trees. God didn't have two plans. There's one tree, and God is making us a part of all of the promises that were predicted all through the Old Testament by grafting us into Christ, who himself is the one true branch that springs up out of the stump of Jesse. So we inherit the promises made to David, the promises made to Abraham, the promises made to the people of Israel throughout all of the Old Testament. We stand in this beautiful succession because of Jesus Christ our Lord. All of the greatness of God's kingdom and glory will come to those who put their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to turn to one last passage. And it is one that Jesus himself uses. I believe this is the last one. Yes, it is. One last one that Jesus uses himself to teach the same type of thing to his listeners in John chapter 15. You turn there for a minute. You knew I was going to end up there, didn't you? See how smart you are. John 15. Jesus says, I am the vine. The true one. That's literally the way it reads. I am the vine, the true one. Israel was God's vine. But he says, you want to know what Israel was really talking about? Talking about me. He says, I'm the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Now now you see branches gets applied to us because he's the one shoot, the one branch that comes up, but that branch branches out as others are grafted into him. Um, as others are truly connected to him, right? Um, He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. What do we find in the New Testament? We find that Jesus Christ and Christ alone is the one who truly flourishes before God. Every other Messiah, every other anointed one has fallen short There were foreshadowings, there was David, there was Joshua the high priest, but they all ultimately failed 
to be as faithful as God wanted them to. Jesus Christ is the only anointed one who will ever perfectly and completely do what God called him to do, will ever be the fruitful Messiah. Isaiah speaks of him as a young plant, a root out of dry ground that has no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But in the end, he says this, in spite of the fact that his people rejected him, that the world rejects him, he says, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He will accomplish what God wants his people to accomplish. Christ does it. And you just look at his earthly life. He did, didn't he? You look at a life that's an example for you. Look at the life of Jesus, the way he obeyed, in spite of temptations, to give up, to not believe God, in spite of the opposition of people all around him. In spite of all of that, he persevered, he obeyed, he flourished, he planted himself in the word of God and brought great fruit to God's eternal glory. Here he was, the branch that bears fruit. Finally, he's come. And now he's saying to his followers, if you would bear fruit, you must be united to me, grafted into me. You must be partakers of Christ. And I tell you today, that is the sermon today. If you would flourish, if you would be fruitful for God's eternal glory, if you would not be one of those branches that fails to bear fruit and is cut off and cast into hellfire, if you would bear fruit for the glory of God, you must be close to Jesus. You must be united with Him, grafted into Him, one with Him, partakers in Him. He is your only hope. And it works this way. It work, the gospel is pictured here in two beautiful ways. Okay, One, the fruit of any branch that's connected to the vine. Christ. The fruit of that branch is the fruit of the vine. Whatever fruit that one single glorious branch bears is by definition the fruit of the entire thing. You don't look at, okay, you don't go to the apple tree in your backyard. I don't know if you have apple trees, orange trees. Maybe you have an orange tree. You don't go to the orange tree in your backyard and say, This branch is so fruitful. This little stick that's, you know, there's a bunch of stuff on here. Uh, Man, I just love this branch. It's just so great. Look at all the fruit it's bearing. No, it's the fruit of the whole thing, right? You can't divide up. Because it's one living organism. It's all connected. And whatever, whatever fruit grows over here, it belongs to the whole tree. So in, in one sense, it's this. All of Jesus' Righteousness, all of his fruit that he bears to God's glory is, by definition, the fruit of his people who are united to him because there's just one tree. That's the glory that we call the imputed righteousness of Christ. His righteousness, his goodness is mine 
not as a theoretical thing or as something that's make-believe, but in reality because I'm united to him. But there's a second gospel reality in this picture, and it is this, that if a branch is really grafted into the tree, then the very life, the very sap life of that tree is flowing through the branch as well as through every other branch, as well as coming up from the roots of the tree. And that sap brings life to every single branch so that if that branch is really and truly connected, if it's not just sort of stuck in there a little bit, but it hasn't organically grown into oneness yet, if that branch is really and truly grafted in, then there is a unity in that organism that it's not two anymore, but one. And the life of that tree will flow out into that thing and, and you'll have... You'll have fruit on all the branches, all the branches that are really connected to the tree. That's why he says here, if, if, there's, a, if there's a branch that's not, if it, if it didn't take root, you know, you went to graft it in and it never really took hold, he says you throw it in the fire. And you know, that's a fearful thing. It's a reminder that there were followers of Jesus who got cast into hellfire. Though they said, hey, we follow you. We've done many wonderful works. We preached in your name. He's like, They didn't bear fruit. They didn't obey. They didn't glorify me. They didn't bear all of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. right? But on the other hand, every branch in him bears fruit. He bears fruit. Brings glory to God. And um, how does that happen? It happens by their abiding in him. So let me finish this way. So, first of all, all glory to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All glory to Christ. But secondly this, if you're going to be fruitful in your life, you're going to be fruitful to God's glory. And you must, you and I must, abide in Jesus Christ. That connectedness to the source of life is vital. It's vital. It is vital that you read His Word and hear His Word with submissive faith if you would bear fruit for God. It is vital that you pray, that you draw near to Christ, that you lay hold of Him by faith in your prayers. That's vital. Abide in me, he says. Stay connected to me. Take your, receive your life every moment of every day from me. Jesus, I mean, the New Testament uses other kinds of terminology to talk about this. Uh, Praying without ceasing. Walking in the Spirit. Abide in Christ. They all mean the same thing, okay? Different nuances. It is living in such a way that you are receiving life from your communion with Christ. And when you do that, if you do that, Jesus says, you'll bear fruit. Because you'll be connected to the fruit-giving branch. Your life will show forth love and joy and peace and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and meekness and self-control and all of these things. You'll bear fruit to the glory of God. You'll respond rightly. You'll do what you ought to do. Say, how do, I, how do I do that? You don't do the right thing and stay away from the wrong thing by saying, I need to do better at doing the right thing. I need to do better at staying away from the wrong things. 
Yeah, you need to tell yourself that, but, but the root of it is getting down to your communion with Christ, staying connected to Jesus, staying close to Him every moment of every day, going to Him to receive His life, living out the life of Jesus in you, organically connected to Him. This is what He's saying. If you do that, then God gets all the glory. Because He says in the end, there is a husbandman, a vine keeper, that works on this vineyard. And what the vine keeper does, Jesus says in Matthew, uh, John 15, is that the vine keeper, he cuts back those parts that are diseased. And the Lord does that in our lives, doesn't he? He takes his word, the word of Christ, and he, by the, by the conviction of the word in our life, the Lord snips away parts of our lives that are still diseased. And he cultivates, he works in your life to draw you to his son, that you would abide in him, so that you end up, guess what? Over time, you're going to bear more and more and more fruit. And in the end of all the ages, everyone stands watching all the fruit from your life and they say, God is amazing. How did he do that? That's what he says. The the vine dresser is glorified. When we bear fruit by union with Christ, who is that promised branch, the shoot from the stump of David, who will bring God's kingdom, a kingdom of flourishing fruitfulness around the entire globe. You'll be a part of that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we pray for that fruitfulness, that we might experience that more. Our fruitfulness is so inconsistent at times. Our abiding in Christ is so inconsistent. We pray that we may not prove to be dead branches, but that we might be livingly connected to Jesus. Oh, Lord, form Jesus Christ in us for your glory and for our eternal good. We pray today that you would pursue any who has gone away from you, whose love has grown cold. Please don't let them go. Please, Lord, we've all been there. Please be merciful. Pray for those who have neglected the word, neglected its hearing, the reading of it, those who have neglected prayer. Lord, we've all had times like that. We look back upon those with shame. We pray that we might draw near to Christ and know the joy of having life flowing through our veins again. Please, Lord. Please help us to do these things by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.